Welcome back to another episode of The Growth Guide. Today we have Simone Stolzoff on the show to talk about his debut book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. Simone is an author, journalist, and workplace expert from San Francisco. A former design lead at the global innovation firm IDEO, his work has been featured in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Wall Street Journal. He dives into the evolving nature of work, the pursuit of fulfillment, and the delicate balance between career and personal life. From challenging the traditional narrative of the dream job to exploring the impact of excessive work hours and the centralization of work as a source of identity, you're going to enjoy this show. I know I did. Simone, welcome to the Growth Guide today. I would love to dive into your book, Good Enough Job, with you. Before we do that, can you share with the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, Clint, thanks for having me on. So yeah, my name is Simone. I am an author, I guess. I'm still sort of working my mouthfeel around that word, but I've had a meandering career. I've worked in a few different industries and advertising and in tech and in journalism and design during my 20s, all the while trying to look for that dream job, that job that could help me self-actualize. And on the other side of a decade searching, I came to a realization that maybe that dream job didn't exist. And so my debut book is called The Good Enough Job. It's kind of two things. One is an investigation into how work has come to be so central to so many people's lives, especially in the West and developed countries. And then the second is an editorial argument about the value of diversifying our identities beyond just what we do for work. Perfect. So let's dive right in with a couple hard-hitting lines from the book. I'll, I'll share them and then let you color it in a little. So the, the first two that really stood out to me early in the book were you said, in the United States, how we make money is shorthand for who we are. Our livelihoods have become our lives. And then you followed that up with, a workist seeks meaning from their work, similar to how a religious person seeks meaning from their faith. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it landed for you? Because those are both things we're going to go deep on today, including what is a workist? Yes, let's start there. So workism or, or workist is a term that was originally coined by a colleague of mine named Derek Thompson at The Atlantic. And in short, refers to someone who treats their work similar to how a religious person might treat their God or their, or their religion. So instead of just looking to work for a paycheck, also looking to work for a purpose, a reason for being a, a means of self-actualization. And, you know, I think this can cut both ways. On one hand, we all hopefully are able to find meaningful work in our lives and a sense of purpose and a sense of community. And at the same time, when it becomes the sole sense of meaning or purpose or identity in your life, it can be a risky bargain. As many people found out in the last few years, where through layoffs or furloughs or often to no reason of the workers themselves, they no longer had their job. So if your work is your sole source of identity and meaning and you lose your job, the question is sort of what's left. Then the first question is about sort of how we got here. You know, how did 
Americans in particular come to ascribe so much of their identities and their meaning to work. And if your last name is is Miller or Baker, you might think this is nothing new, you know, for as long as our country has existed, uh, hard work and productivity have been associated with self-worth and our, our own identities. You know, the Protestant work ethic and capitalism are really the two strands that entwine to form Americans' DNA. But in the last 40 or so years, a few trends have converged to make work particularly central. I think they're are economic reasons, there are political reasons, there are cultural reasons. For one, there's been a huge decline in other sources of meaning and community and identity for Americans. So things like organized religion or neighborhood and community groups. And with the decline of some of these institutions, the need for belonging and meaning and purpose remain. And so many people have turned to the place where they spend the majority of their time, which is the office. So that's one reason. There are also sort of subjective cultural reasons, you know, the ways in which CEOs have become celebrities and we plaster always do what you love on the walls of our co-working spaces. There is this idea that, you know, you are what you do as the barriers between our personal lives and our professional lives converge on social media. Often the first question that we ask each other when we meet someone new is what do you do for work? And, you know, it wasn't always this way. We tend to lead with our professional identities now in, say, the, the last 20 or 30 years in a way that wasn't necessarily the case before. And then I think there's also a number of political factors. So, for example, in the United States, our healthcare is tied to our employment. If you're an immigrant, your ability to stay in this country is often tied to your employment. And so one of the reasons why our relationship to work seems so fraught in this country is because the consequences of losing work are so dire. And so people cling to their jobs, not just because they want to, but also in many cases, because they have to. Wow. So we have a lot to unpack in that one answer. Let, let's start with a lot of our listeners may not know the tie-in to the idea of Calvinism and the Protestant work ethic. And, and interestingly, religion used to be that spot where a lot of us would would go to find our meaning and purpose. And over time, that shifted. And you talk about the fact that the number of people who are identifying as religious, now, more than any time in history, there are more people identifying as non-religious than any single religion. So the greatest religion is non-religion. And, and so it seems that that original Protestant capitalist tie-in that you talked about, where did that come from? What was it like before that? And how has that also driven some of this shift away from religion as a place where we find purpose and even relationships and camaraderie into work is the place we do that? Yeah, so let's start with Calvinism. So, you know, John Calvin, pastor, Western Europe in the late 16th century. And, you know, you take this idea of Protestantism that came from Martin Luther and he built upon it. And the basic idea was that our path on whether we're destined for heaven or hell is preordained. Only God knows that path. But there are some signs that you are part of what Calvinists called the elect, which were essentially the chosen ones. 
And one of those signs was your ability to work hard and your ability to gain material wealth. And so everyone was destined to their post, you know, the cobbler to his shoes, the blacksmith to his workshop. And one of the ways in which you could indicate both to the other earthly beings around you and to maybe a higher power that you were destined to heaven was by your ability to work hard. That's where this idea of this kind of work ethic comes from. And when you think about the foundation of the United States, a lot of those same Calvinist values were integral in the way in which our country was established. Now, fast forward, you know, it's a fairly religious country moving into the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries. In, say, like the 1950s, about 4 or 5% of Americans considered themselves either atheist, agnostic, or not believing in anything in particular. And then this trend occurred starting about 30 or so years ago where the number of non-religious folks started to skyrocket. There's this term that social scientists use called the nuns, which is that kind of catch-all term for people that either don't believe in God or just don't believe in religion at all. And now about one in three Americans is a member of this group. So you've seen this very stark rise in the number of people who don't associate with religion. Now, at the same time, this is coalescing with some interesting trends in the modern workforce. So in the 1970s, for example, the average American and the average German and the average French person all worked about the same number of hours. And now the average American works about 30% more than the average German. So you get these kind of two trends that are happening in concert with one another. One is the increase in people who are non-religious, or you can think about it as the decrease in religiosity in the United States. And then you can think about this flatlining or this increase of work hours or time people spend working. And the greatest increases of working hours are found amongst some of the highest earners in the United States. So the same people who could afford to work the least are in fact working more than ever. And so part of the thing that I do in sort of the first half of the book is show how these two trends can overlap and how one may lead to another, whereas you might have looked to your church to be a source of meaning or purpose in, this, in the world. Now, a lot of white college-educated Americans in particular are looking to their jobs for that same sense of purpose and identity and meaning. Ouch. And you tie that to this idea of looking for that job that you love and pursuing your passion. And you were doing that for a period of time post-college. But, but then you heard uh, this line that I loved, which was, instead of the old cliche, do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. What uh, someone said to you was, uh, I believe it was the artist Adam Kurtz, do what you love and you'll work super fucking hard all the time with no separation or any boundaries and also take everything extremely personally. So how have you how have you seen that play out in your life and in the people that you profiled in the book or or have had conversations with in preparing for the book? 
like you take the examples of, and maybe we'll wait, but we'll like this whole idea of vocational awe and how debilitating that can be for people who go that route. Yeah. And I think that line from Adam is, is really resonant, especially for people who are maybe entrepreneurs or people who derive a lot of meaning and identity through work. You know, I think one of the the great gifts that you get when you are successful in the Western world is is more work. It's very easy for work to completely take over your life. And so I think there's sort of two things. There's sort of the economic argument for the value of diversifying your identity or perhaps working a little bit less. But then there's also just the humanist argument. I'll start with the first and then I'll go into the second. So the economic argument is that there aren't always a direct relationship between the number of hours you spend working and the quality of the work that you produce. And this is becoming increasingly true as we shift from a more service-based or manufacturing-based economy into a more knowledge-based economy. So if the deliverable is something like the headline for a marketing campaign or a strategy document for an organization, there isn't always a direct relationship between the number of hours that you put in and the quality of work that you get out. I think we can all relate to this firsthand. If you're on hour 11 of a 12-hour day, or if you've worked you know, seven weeks in a row without taking any time off, or if your day is just a series of meeting after meeting after meeting without the space that we need in order for ideas to bounce off of each other and synthesize and make sense of all that you're taking in, the quality of your work is not necessarily going to be as good. So there's sort of like the business case, not to mention kind of burnout and getting to a point where you're unable to continue to produce or keep working. But the other case that I make in the book is this more sort of humanist case. I don't think that we should work less just because it produces better work. I think we should work less because it produces better people. You know, certainly we're all more than just workers. We are parents and siblings and friends and neighbors and citizens. And if we overinvest in just one aspect of who we are, those other identities that exist within us can wither. You know, our, our identities are sort of like plants. They need time and attention in order to grow. And if we're giving all of our time and attention and energy just to our work life, we're not going to be the well-rounded people that we should aspire to. And you talk about in the first case study you give, what you illustrated was that the psychological research shows if we are fully flushed out in those different sides of ourselves, we're better at dealing with setbacks. And the more we let one area, let's call it work, overcome who we are, the less resilient we are to change. What does that look like for you and and how should the listeners be thinking about that as it relates to their lives? Yeah, so maybe it'll be best illustrated through an example. So imagine you are maybe new to a job and you are really passionate about this work and you really care about what your boss says to you, the validation or lack thereof that you get from your boss. And you don't have very much else going on in your life. Maybe you're moving to a new city for this job and really work is sort of at the center and everything else is in the margins. 
Then one day you come in and you get a bad performance review or your boss says something critical of your work. If you don't have these other identities that you've cultivated, it can very easily spill over into all other facets of your life. It can be this cloud that sort of hangs over you, especially if it's the only way in which you are deriving self-worth. But then think about if you have a broader foundation, if you have taken the time to develop and consider yourself as more than just a worker, you have other identities, other communities in which you play a role, maybe that sting from your boss does not stick or spill over as much. You can still derive self-worth from the way in which you show up as a friend, or you can still derive fulfillment from the ways that you're contributing to your community through a volunteer project or through your kids or through your friendships or relationships or how you show up as a family member. And so the research shows that you know people who have what they call more self-complexity, who have developed these different sides of who they are, tend to be more resilient in the face of adversity. It also shows that people who have more self-complexity tend to be more creative and innovative because they're able to draw inspiration from a wider source of knowledge and relationship. And so I think the upshot here is that much as an investor benefits from diversifying the stocks in their portfolio, we too benefit from being able to diversify the sources of meaning and identity in our lives. And the one thing you said there is, is that person who really gets their identity from their job. And in the book, you talk about certain careers that you're willing to take less pay because the job is a bit of a mission. I think zookeepers, librarians, nurses, teachers, you feel that the mission and the purpose of the job is sometimes great enough that you should be willing to, to some extent, sacrifice. And part of the challenge, I, th I think that's what we call vocational law. So I'll, I'll let you define it uh, better if I've butchered it a little. But, but one of the challenges is when you look back in time, and let's talk post-World War II, a lot of the growth in America was through the middle class. And that's who was earning the money from this capitalist machine we talk about. And slowly over time, as we told people that the workplace is a family and you should invest in the mission, as we did that, the percentage of the earnings that these workers were, were getting was going lower and lower and lower. And so the CEO pay gap, if you will, has just gone exponential throughout that time frame. So what is, and I'm wrapping a bunch of them in up there for you with we've got vocational law, we've got the workplaces of family in quotation marks, and how that leads to a widening gap in earnings between the average worker and the owners or the CEOs of these companies. So how do you see that playing out? And what are some alarm bells we should be thinking about when we hear them in the workplace? Yeah. So if there were was just one chart to explain the American economy. It would be the chart of time versus productivity and wages. 
And for the majority of the 20th century, productivity and wages grew in lockstep with one another. And then in the mid-19th century, there, uh, the mid-1970s, there was this great rift where productivity continued to increase due to technological innovation and better ways of working, and yet wages began to stagnate. And the question is why? And, you know, I think the simple answer, you know, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots here, is that the ownership class started consolidating wealth, and that meant decreasing their costs. And one of the biggest costs is, in fact, the labor force. And so if managers or CEOs or owners weren't going to pay workers more, they had to find other reasons for workers to come to work, to continue to show up and be productive. There's this quote that I have in the book from the head of uh, the New York Stock Exchange in the 1970s, who says something like, if monetary compensation is going to stay the same, then we have to find these other forms of compensation in order to lure workers to the workplace. So the result of that is you get this sort of work as meaning movement that is propped up both by the business self-help literature that begins around that time, books like What Color Is Your Parachute, but also the, the rhetoric of companies that say, here, come and join our company. We will treat you well. We will be loyal to you. We will maybe feed you or throw concerts. You know, these ideals of 20th century corporations like Kodak and, and IBM, these sort of all-encompassing precursors to the Silicon Valley campuses. And then, you know, it'll be worth it for you, even as CEO pay is going up, 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 while the average worker pay is flatlining. Then you get this idea of vocational awe, which you brought up, and it's essentially the idea that in certain lines of work, particularly mission-driven or creative fields, the idea is that the privilege to do that type of creative or mission-driven work should be seen as a form of compensation in and of itself. So you can think about fields like nursing and teaching, as you mentioned, that are kind of care-oriented fields. You can think about uh, fields like, you know, the screenwriters in Hollywood is a great recent example of a field where, you know, you get to be creative and think all day, this isn't a job, this is a, a passion, you should be grateful just to be here. There's a line of people out the door who would happily take your job. And the problem with that rhetoric, the problem with that, this idea of thinking as these certain fields or these certain jobs as righteous is that it can cover up a lot of the injustice that exists in these different professions. We saw this during the pandemic when we told you know, nurses and teachers that they were doing essential work, but rarely compensated them in a way that was commensurate with the severity of the work that they were doing. And so, you know, this labor of love ethic has really ballooned in the past 20 years or so. And now in kind of the last three or so years, we're starting to see a pushback. We're starting to see workers see their work as what it is, an economic contract. And certainly it can be a lot more than that. But the movement towards unions and labor organizing, I think, is a pushback against a lot of the prevailing sort of labor of love ethic that was popular in the few decades before. And for the people who don't know, what was the rate 
of unionization or the average population that was unionized, let's say, in the 1960s and 70s? And, and what is the rate of unionization today in society? Yeah, so at sort of the peak in the 20th century of unionization, about one in three Americans was part of a, a union. And today that number is about one in 10. And, in, you know, there's this interesting moment right now, you know, as a labor reporter, I'm obviously tracking these things. The, the opinion that Americans have towards unions is reaching sort of a multi-decade high. About 70% of Americans these days are pro-union, but that doesn't necessarily translate into people actually being part of unions. And so without the sort of collective bargaining apparatus that an organized labor force provides, workers simply have less of a say. And that's why some of these things like an ordinate CEO pay or a lack of protection or job security or fair compensation persists. And so when you think of unionization and you think of that decades long high with 70% approving of unions, do you have a vision that we will see an increase in unionization? I mean, we see people trying to unionize certain areas, certain branches of, let's say, uh, Amazon or Starbucks. Do you see over time enough people saying, wait a second, these owners or this owner class has so abused their power that we, the people, need to take it back? And unionization is one of the ways that we're going to do that. I do, you know, and I think that culture is often a, a precursor to change, and we're seeing a lot more coverage of unions, we're seeing a lot more favoritism, we're seeing a lot more media about union growth, and I think it is this sort of 21st century workforce waking up to an old idea, which is that, you know, if workers don't have money, their strength comes from organizing, their strength comes from numbers. You know, certainly it was organized labor that got us things like the five-day work week and the nine-to-five work day. And, you know, all the sort of labor wins of the 20th century are the result of organized labor. And now we're seeing it in industries that haven't traditionally been unionized, like tech, where it's not just about working conditions, but it's also trying to have a say in the direction of different companies and trying to make sure that workers' voice is represented in the values that companies espouse. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy what you're hearing so far and want me to be able to get your favorite guests on this show, please do me a quick favor. Subscribe to the show and leave me a rating. The 30 seconds of your time will mean a ton to me. Yeah, I found that example about the unionization in your book very interesting in that one of the things they were looking for was the ability to have a voice in the direction of the company. Is that an area you see growing? And do you see a bit of power in the people making these decisions versus the select few? Yeah, definitely. You know, I think... You might look at a workforce like the workforce of Google or the workforce of a place like OpenAI and say, you know, these are well-paid tech workers, they're software engineers and designers and product people, 
they don't necessarily need a union to advocate for better wages. And while that might be true, it's important to note that wages is not the only thing that a union can advocate for. You know, I think we saw this firsthand even a few weeks ago with the ouster of, of Sam Altman, the workers banding together and declaring that they want Sam back in at CEO is a labor story. It's an example yeah, of workers using their collective voice in order to make change. And especially when you think of a generation defining technology like AI that has huge implications, both potential upside and downside risks, I think it's important that the power and the decision-making is not concentrated in the hands of a select few. And that's the other side of union voice that I think we could all benefit from is if you are working for a company where the strategic decisions are going to impact your life and your livelihood, you deserve to have a say in the choices that these companies are making. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to put it. And something you mentioned in there that people may not see or think about, you were talking about the tech companies and in some of these perks or bonuses that they offer, but what you share in the book is it's never done without a rigorous amount of analysis. For example, how much work has to be done and the earnings that are generated from it by providing that free dinner when you get to seven o'clock or by providing that free Uber home if you work to nine o'clock. We often think that the owners who are providing that aren't necessarily doing it in a, in a completely Machiavellian way. But the example in your book was someone who ran these numbers for companies to say, well, what is the return on providing that snack? Or what is the return on providing that car ride? What does that look like for the average young worker who doesn't realize what they're up against? Yeah, you know, I don't think it's a room full of executives sort of twiddling their thumbs and saying, you know, how can we take advantage of our workers to the most degree? And, you know, if we have a ping pong table and if we offer dinner, will they stay working longer in an evil way? But I do think that it's ultimately a, a business decision. And I think one of the risks, especially for young workers who might move to a new place and get sort of enraptured in the mystique of some of these tech campuses that become your go-to gym and your go-to dinner spot and where you make all of your friends, is ultimately it is serving the company. And it's important to be clear-headed about this. You know, I think a lot of workers in the past few years who worked for you know, the Googles and the Twitters and the metas of the world found this out firsthand. One, with the shift from in-person to remote work, you were forced to actually confront the type of work that you were doing every day. And I talked to many tech workers for the book who said things like, you know, I, I looked myself in the mirror and I asked, do I want to spend the rest of my life doing, you know, software as a service B2B sales? And the answer was no. So in one way, some of these perks can be used to sort of mask the actual mission and purpose of these companies. Another way is that they just become all-consuming and they crowd out other aspects of your life. And so, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a, a drink at work or staying for dinner. But if it becomes a trend, that means that you're not having dinner with your family or with your friends or 
you're not investing in the local community around where you live. And then it becomes this perpetuating cycle where, you know, all you do is work and spend your time working. And so you don't know how to spend your time when you're not working. And so you work more and the cycle continues. And I think, you know, young workers are waking up to this fact a little bit. You know, in the early aughts, in the 2010s, there was this sort of Silicon Valley ethos that was so desirable and you wanted to go work for the company that allowed you to do laundry and get your hair cut on campus. And now I think a lot of workers have a much more balanced view, which is, you know, I want a place where I can show up, I can do great work, but at the end of the day, I can go home. And I think that's a much healthier perspective to take when it comes to work for our lives. Well, it reminds me of you write about the line that's written on the wall at the Slack head office, which is work hard and go home. What, what does that look like for you? And, and what does it look like for the people that embody that style? Yeah. Worked in corporate environments, both in journalism and, and in tech before I became a full-time author. And I think one of the things that I realized is once I started working for myself, I had this assumption that it was the, the company that I worked for, or it was the manager that was pushing me to work long hours or to you know, open the laptop up on the weekends. And then I started working for myself and I realized, wait a second, you know, I am the worst manager that I've ever had. You know, it is me that was pushing myself to keep working even when I wasn't being productive or to, you know, not have good boundaries between when I was on and off the clock. And so it's been this very conscious effort of how do I make it more clear so that I'm not continually in this state of half work, sort of like a shark with one eye open, with one eye on Slack or, or my email. And, you know, I think they're similar to the very first, you know, point that we were making there, sort of work benefits and non-work benefits from having clear boundaries between when you are and you aren't working. The, the work benefit is that by allowing yourself to completely unplug, to, to recharge, you can return to work with clear eyes, with well-rested thoughts, with an idea of, okay, I'm here to work and I have a clear purpose as opposed to constantly multitasking and never quite getting enough done. And then there are also benefits to our life outside of work, you know, whether you're a parent or just a friend or someone who wants to cultivate different hobbies or interests, you know, one of the benefits of, say, going for a run or going to a, a yoga class is that these are activities that kind of structurally prevent you from working while you're doing them. And by doing that, it allows you to really be present and derive meaning from these other sources of your life besides just the workplace. And so that's one of the kind of the, the fears I have of, of modern knowledge work is that it's incredibly leaky. You know, when we all carry around an office in our pocket, there, it's harder to delineate between when you are and when you're not working. And so we have to do a lot of that work around setting boundaries ourselves. Well, it brings you to the idea in the title of the book, The Good Enough Job. And so you got that idea from the 1950s concept of the good enough parent, which seemed to somewhat contrast that all too common helicopter parent we see who, or, or tiger parent who's trying to make the perfect kid and scheduling every second of their day 
So what prompted the concept of, of, of the good enough job? And to you, what does the good enough look like? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think, you know, in, in the title, it sort of is an allusion to two things. One is this theory of good enough parenting that I can explain in a second. The other is as a contrast to kind of the dream job. And, you know, I, I want to be clear on what it's not. You know, I, I don't think you, you look at the title of the book, you know, the good enough job, reclaiming life from work and think that it's this like slacker manifesto or it's this excuse to kind of check out and just sit on your couch all day. And it's not that. I think the ethos of the book is much closer to what we were just talking about of, you know, the hours that you're at work, be at work, try and do great work, try and find meaningful work. And when you're not at work, leave where it is. You know, the, the idea of the good enough parent came from this pediatrician and psychoanalyst named Donald Winnicott. And Winnicott was observing in England where he was from this growing idolization of parenting, where parents wanted to be the perfect parent and shield their kid from experiencing any sort of negative emotion or harm. And then when the kid inevitably felt frustrated or sad or angry, the parent took it extremely personally. And so Winnicott proposed an alternative and he called it you know, good enough parenting. And the idea was that by taking this approach that valued sufficiency as opposed to perfection, both the kid and the parent would benefit. The child would learn how to self-soothe and take care of some of their own problems, and the parent wouldn't get lost in their children's emotions. So obviously, I'm making kind of a direct parallel to the working world, and our jobs, you know, like a crying toddler, are not things that we can always control. And so maybe an approach that values sufficiency as opposed to perfection will actually allow us to have a healthier relationship to work. This isn't to say to settle or to not look for work that you find personally meaningful or to not align your interests and your passions with how you make money. I think that is all well and good. But the important part here is that we're starting with our vision of a life well lived and thinking about how our jobs and our careers can support that vision as opposed to what is so often the status quo these days, the other way around, where the job is at the center and everything else yes, is outside. Yes. And one of the challenges we have with that is for a lot of us, we always think that the change is right around the corner. When I get to this step, I can slow down. When I'm making this much money, I can relax. When I get this title, it's going to change. You call that the if-then trap. And what I'd love to share is the research that Michael Norton did at the Harvard Business School, and then we could dive into that as sort of a last question that in, in the book was this idea that in a study of more than 200 millionaires, he, he asked them two simple questions. How are you on a scale of one to 10? And how much money would you need to get to get to a 10? And regardless of how much they had, whether it was a million, two million, five or more, most of the respondents said, they'd be happier when they had two to three times as much money as they had. What's that telling us? Yeah, you know, I, th I think you get a laugh of it because it's relatable, right? You know, you can all think about the ways in which you very easily habituate to whatever situation you're in. It's very hard to recognize that 
what you have today might be what you wanted to have one, two, or five years ago. So yes. part of it is this idea of the kind of hedonic treadmill. It's this idea that we will always acclimate to whatever situation that we're in and return to a kind of fixed set point. And when you make more money, you start comparing yourself to a group of peers that are also making more money and it's harder for you to be content or satisfied with what you have. The second is this idea of like if then thinking or, or when then thinking where you put these targets out in front of you and say, when I get promoted or when my net worth is X amount of dollars or when I find the love of my life, then I will be happy. Then I will be fulfilled. And the problem is a fewfold. One is as you reach those different milestones, you tend to just push the goalposts further away and you know have another if-then statement that becomes contingent on your last achievement. And the second is that wherever you go, there you are. You know, you are still the same person. And so I, I end the book with the story of this guy named Kay He, who was this kind of prototypical type A overachiever, maybe similar to a lot of the, the listeners of the show, where he was ambitious. And from a young age, he knew that he wanted to go to a top college. And so he made good grades and and got into an Ivy League school. And then when he got to college, he said, okay, I want to make as much money as I possibly can. And the options then are, you know, banking or consulting, or I could be a lawyer, or I could be a, a doctor. And he, and he chose banking. He chose to go work on Wall Street. And he joins BlackRock, which is at the time the largest asset management firm in the world. And he rises to the ranks and becomes one of the youngest ever managing directors at BlackRock. You know, he's making uh, over a million dollars a year before the time he turns 30. He owns his first New York City apartment and he's just on this treadmill. He's, he's running and he's running and he's running and he's running. And then he is preparing to go to a friend of his wedding and he realized that a chunk of his hair has fallen out due to stress-related alopecia. And, you know, it was this wake-up call for him that, one, sure. he was very, on paper, successful, but what was the cost of all of this, of this success? And two, that he was playing a game that he didn't actually want to win. You know, he made it to the top of the hill that he was climbing and recognized that the view from that perch wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. And so the realization there is, you know, when you are solely living your life based on extrinsic motivation, based on what the market values or what the world values or the most prestigious sounding job or the highest potential salary, it's very easy to lose sight of what you intrinsically value, what you value yourself. So that's one end of the spectrum. I think there's also a risk on the other end of the spectrum. And so if you think about okay. someone who is just making decisions based on what they value without considering what the world values or without considering what the market values, you can find yourself in a position where, for example, you're assuming a lot of debt to go to graduate school to pursue a degree that might not actually lead to stable job prospects on the other end. 
or you go all in to pursue your art, but you're so preoccupied with how you're going to make rent that you can't focus on the actual art that you hope to create. And so I think my takeaway from you know, learning about Kay and some of the research behind this stuff is we have to think about both. We have to think about what the world values in one hand and what we ourselves value in the other hand and try and find work at their intersection. Because if you're solely making decisions based on what floats your boat without considering what the world values, or if you're solely making decisions based on what the world values without tapping into what you yourself care about, you can be left high and dry. I mean, to some extent, it's looking for that Japanese ikigai concept of what am I good at? What do I love doing? What does the world need? What can I get paid for? And, and where we find that intersection, I don't want to say, you know, you're going to be doing what you love, so you won't be working, but you will likely enjoy it more. And as you said earlier, playing a game that you want to win. I was just going to say my only build on that is that knowing that some of that can come, some of that fulfillment can come from your work life. And some of that fulfillment can come from your life outside of yes. work. Yes. And, yeah. you know, you can still be ambitious about things other than things that you can get paid for. And I think that's really important to keep in mind is that, you know, as you think about what contributes to a life well lived, like, sure, you know, some of those exercises like Ikigai can be really important to help you find sort of that intersection but also thinking more expansively about ways that you might be able to find meaning or identity or purpose in a way that no boss or manager or economic downturn can ever take away from you. And that jumped out early in the book for me when you mentioned the line that the poet, I may have the pronunciation wrong and you correct me on this, Anis Mojani. Anis uh, Mojani, yeah. Okay. And what they said to you was, Work will always be work. Some people work doing what they love. Other people work so they can do what they love when they're not working. Mm. Neither is more noble. Yeah. I think, you know, that's sort of if you could encapsulate the wisdom of the book in one phrase, it would be that. And you know, I think we live in a culture and a society that loves to revere people whose work and our identity neatly align. And Yet, you know, the majority of people don't work to self-actualize. They, they work to survive. And I think that's important to keep in mind, too. And so, yes, you know, some people have the privilege of being able to do work that they love. And some people do work that affords them to be able to do what they love when they're not working. Yeah, it's a beautiful way to look at it. And I'm going to flip the script a little. Fire some rapid fire questions on you to, to wrap it up. So. The first one, what, what one book have you read that had the most impact on your life? Uh, there's many ways to answer this question. I think one book that I read recently that has really stuck with me is this book called Dedicated um, by this guy named Pete Davis. And it's a book about commitment. I think the subtitle is something like, you know, commitment in an age of infinite options. And I think it's a really profound book for our age because we do live in this time where the amount of options, whether it's the amount of people that you can date, the amount of jobs that you can do, or the amount of places that you can live have never been more visible. And yet, if you are always in kind of infinite browsing mode and you know the 
canonical example of being on Netflix and spending all night sort of trying to figure out what to watch and then turning off the TV, it doesn't allow you to get the benefits that come from really squaring your hips and committing to something. So, you know, that's a book whose who's mission and whose message has, has really stuck with me since I read it. Well, I want to check that out now. What's something you're reading right now that you enjoy? Hmm. I am reading two books. One is a memoir. It's by the poet named Maggie Smith, and it's called You Can Make This Place Beautiful. And it's a memoir that is about her divorce and sort of the way in which her marriage broke down. But it's told in this really beautiful way where there's a lot of white space and there are chapters that are just you know two paragraphs long and chapters that are 20 pages long. And it's just one of those books where the prose, the writing itself, just really jumps off the page. And then the second is uh, Same as Ever, Morgan Housel's new book, the guy who oh, wrote yes. Psychology of Money. And yeah, it's great. I like the sort of model of the kind of internet blogger turned author. And it's also novel in its approach in that it's, you know, 25 or so chapters. And each one is just this short vignette that has one message about some wisdom that will withstand the test of time, something that will always be true um, from history that you can use to ground yourself as we face an uncertain future. Wonderful. That's definitely a must read. Uh, what's one thing that you spent under $1,000 on in the last year that you've thought to yourself, damn, I wish I'd bought this <laughs> sooner? Well, you know, I'm sitting here at my desk and I'm looking at this little a little man. Are those um, sticky notes? No, it's like it's kind of like a fidget toy. Okay. I used to be like very skeptical. You know, my wife is a former elementary school teacher. And so I've had to deal with a lot of nine-year-olds that have their poppets and different toys that they're playing with during class. But I am such a fan. And I was sort of skeptical on the way in which like playing with something in your hand can actually get you to focus or be more present. But as someone who, you know, has a racing mind and often a, a restless knee as well, having just this little thing to play with on my desk has, has been a game changer especially in those uh, Zoom meetings that could have been emails. Yeah, I always have like a pen lid or something in my hand that I'm just fidgeting with. So I absolutely love that concept. And to, as a final question, because the show's about growth and learning and change, what's one mindset shift or habit or behavior that you've changed that's had an oversized impact on your life? Well, I can tell you a little bit about what I'm working on now, and it's sort of related to that, which is my next book is about how to get better at dealing with what we don't know. And I think the mindset shift for me was, I think I spent a lot of my youth trying to control my future, you know, trying to control my own destiny and do things where I could either optimize for optionality or optimize for trying to find the best or trying to predict the exact outcome of where I wanted to be in, in five years. And I think one of the biggest shifts that I made recently is accepting that anything that happens in the future is uncertain by definition. And this sort of illusion of control we have over the future can cause more pain than it causes realistic benefit. And so pairing this idea of, you know, still striving towards growth and improvement with the acceptance that ultimately the future is uncertain has felt like an incredible kind of weight lifted off my shoulder. 
and a level of just acceptance that, you know, we can try our best, we can have intentions, but ultimately we're not entitled to any particular outcomes or the results. It sounds wonderful and scary all at mm -hmm. the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's why we cling for control, right? Because exactly. the future exactly. that is uncertain is scary and yeah. we want some psychological reassurance along the way. Absolutely. So we went pretty wide and deep. Is there anything we didn't cover that you want to make sure we get across to the listener today? No, I mean, I, I really appreciated these questions. And, you know, I think the the book has been yeah, interesting. You know, it's been out for a few months now. And there are a few demographics that it has really resonated with that I assumed it would resonate with. One is people who are trying to figure out their next step or trying to figure out kind of right size their relationship to work, or maybe you're considering a, a career pivot. And the two demographics that I really didn't expect that seem to reach out to me a lot or have gotten a lot from the book are recent retirees. So people who are going from this place of sort of like work centricity to a next chapter and recent college grads who are sort of trying to figure out what they want from their career and trying to be intentional about right-sizing workplace in their lives. So, you know, it's the holidays. And if there are any of people in, in those demographics in your life, maybe they would uh, appreciate the book. And if anyone wants to learn more, everything you need to know is at thegoodenoughjob.com. Well, that was the last question. Where do they find you? So thegoodenoughjob.com is where you want them to go. Perfect. I love it. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me on, Clint. Cheers. If you like the podcast, you'll love our new newsletter, The Growth Guide. Every Thursday, straight to your inbox with the goal to help you be better, achieve more, and become financially free. Check it out at our website, thegrowth.guide. Subscribe and learn more.